I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. The history of Hollywood is filled with great comedy teams, some of whom loved each other, such as Laurel and Hardy, others who genuinely despised each other, we're talking to you, Abbott Costello, and still others that began from a place of mutual admiration, grew to love, and ultimately fell into acting. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, collectively known as Martin and Lewis, fall into that category. From today's point of view, it's difficult to recognize just how popular Martin and Lewis were as a team. In fact, at their height, the fan frenzy greeting them wasn't that far removed from, say, the Beatles. They're largely remembered for the 17 films they made between 1949 and 1956, but for Michael J. Hayde, author of Side by Side, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis on TV and radio, it was in those mediums that the comedy duo truly got the opportunity to shine and be their most creatively free. Today, Michael joins us to provide some insight into Martin and Lewis, both on camera and off. I'm going to start with the usual question, which is, uh, you know, again, and, and we've discussed this in the past, when you're writing a book about something, you have to be passionate about it or have some interest in it at the very least. What was it about Martin Lewis, Lewis that made you uh, want to do the book? Uh, the fact that my mother used to tell me about seeing them on the Colgate Comedy Hour, this was when I was a child and uh, or a teenager, and just feeling that uh, there was something unique there that the the rest of us were never going to get to see, uh, and and that certainly was true for a number of years. But then suddenly the the videos came out, and it was evident that my mother knew exactly what she was talking about. That this was a unique team, with uh, and and very. The, spont- the spontaneity and and uh, the combination of slapstick and charm was just uh, amazing to me, and that's why I aspire to write about it because uh, at that time the biographies, uh, either jointly or separately, um, paid lip service to the to the work, but uh, didn't spend a whole lot of time, uh, you know examining it in detail and the other thing that uh, perhaps shouldn't have surprised have surprised me was the fact that the uh, uh, the shows are in a sense a document of uh, their working relationship at the time the early shows are are a lot of fun and it's clear that them are having a great deal of fun together and later on as their uh, their personal relationship began to fray uh, it, it shows up to the point where the very last Colgate hour that they did in November of 1955, it's, it's almost painful to watch because the two are just not relating to each other at all and uh, don't even seem to like each other very much. I want to get into all that, but let, let's, let's move back to the start of sort of what brought these two guys together. In the first, well, actually, let me, I'm sorry, let me interrupt my own question with, with what, something you said before, that these guys were unique. Were they unique, so unique, they, I mean, that really stood apart from other comic acts like, you know, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, whoever it may be? Yes, Abbott and Costello relied mainly on routines. Okay. They're the, the burlesque routines, such as Who's on First and, uh, and all of those. Uh, the, 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 the arithmetic one, the, the, there are just tons of routines that are, that are excellent and still funny today. But uh, you can't really carry a, a movie with that, and, and beyond that, they were just uh, um, an ordinary, a very good, very talented, but but still ordinary team. Right. Um, 
the likes of which there were there were several in vaudeville and even in film uh, are kind of held up as the template of two guys who love one another and even though it's obvious that they have uh, a great deal of affection for each other it's not really built into the material. I mean, there were times when they were, the two of them were, were bedding to get down together for the night. And you still see the, uh, the frustration of Oliver Hardy and the, the dim wittedness, the grasp, simple concepts that Stan Laurel displays, all of which is, is very, very funny. And yes, there's an underlying affection between the two, but it's definitely beneath the service, the surface with Martin and Lewis. It's all over the top. Jerry Lewis, of course, was an unrestrained id. Uh, that yes. was basically his personality. Right. And Dean was cool, calm, and collected and, and was able to reel this guy back in from the brink of insanity time and time again. And it's obvious that they are enjoying one another. They laugh at each other's ad libs. They'll grab each other. They'll, they'll uh, jump on top of each other. Dean will stick his fingers in Jerry's mouth and pull him towards him. Uh, Dean actually sticks his finger up one of Jerry's nostrils to, to, <laughs> to grab him. Right. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff is just, the, the intimacy that's there is just, is just astonishing. Yeah. Plus the fact that they both seem to enjoy what they're doing. Right. So in that respect, I, fi I find that to be unique in team comedy. Right. So let's talk then, go back to what I was saying, is about the meeting, how these two guys came together. Well, they were both working in nightclubs, and uh, they happened in and around New York City, and it, it was probably inevitable that they were going to wind up uh, on the same bill. At some point, Jerry was, was acting as an MC. He would be the host for the evening, but he would also do an act, and his act at that time was miming to popular records. And, uh, you know, it was all, it was a pantomime act and he would gesticulate wildly and he would make faces and, uh, to, to certain recordings and, and it did get a lot of laughs, but it was a really a one note thing. Right. You know, so, and Dean of course was the crooner. He was, uh, he had that, that, uh, that husky voice that, that, uh, wasn't that necessarily as pure as Sinatra's, but he, he had that certain magnetism, but it took him a while to find himself. He was still a product of his environment, which was the uh, uh, Steubenville, Ohio, which was a haven for uh, underworld activity. It was it was known informally as Little Chicago um, because there was a lot of uh, it, Italian uh, underworld presence, let's say, right. back then. So, uh, and, and he fell into that world actually for a brief period. He was doing, uh, he was working at a, uh, uh, a gambling establishment that was uh, in the back of a, uh, of a retail establishment and he was dealing cards and, uh, acting as a croupier. Hmm. So, um, it, and it was really his gangster friends who, who helped fund his start in show business by insisting that he get out of there and, and take a job with uh, with a local band. So by the mid '40s, uh, when this took place, uh, they the two of them were working around building in, uh, a reputation, uh, 
in my book, I quote uh, a review of the bill, uh, even though they didn't interact with each other. Um, and it shows that Jerry's the the, uh, the verdict is that Jerry is a bright youngster who needs more schooling as an MC, but otherwise he's okay. Right. And Dean is the show's weak spot. He's got a nice voice, but he lacks the feel necessary to reach the customers. These are pretty much verbatim quotes. Right. So this is where they were in September of 1944 when they met, and, and, but they became friends. Dean said, I admired the fact that Jerry was always in there pushing. He was, you know, trying to do his best to reach the audience. And I thought he was a great guy. And Jerry was just stunned at this, you know, in awe of this laid back guy who really didn't care one way or the other, whether the audience liked him or not. He was going to get up there and sing his songs and, and, uh, and move on. At, at least it seemed he didn't care. Of course, Dean Martin did. That was just the, he was projecting even then. Right. That, that he was doing you a favor. <laughs> to, <laughs> That's right. To sing for you. Thanks, Dean. <laughs> yep. So uh, over time, they would meet up and when they were when they happened to be booked together, and then in March of 1946, they were booked in a club called the Havana Madrid in Manhattan, and uh, after hours the two of them started to do a little after piece where Dean would attempt to sing and Jerry would interrupt. And eventually this extended into uh, their main performances where Jerry would be mouthing to records and Dean would knock the turntable so that the record would skip. And, uh, and Jerry would pretend to be a busboy and interrupt one of Dean's songs. Right. You know, so, and and so finally, in July of 1946, they were appearing, uh, they were booked at the uh, 500 Club again as separate solo acts. But this time they decided to do uh, an act. And they attempted to create one. They sat together in the hotel room and attempted to create uh, an act. And Jerry was coming up with bits that he'd seen over the years and it just wasn't gelling on paper as Dean later put it. And so what they ended up doing was as Dean later said, that we, we just went on with a who the hell cares anyway attitude and it worked wonders. The crowd went wild. Now, is that because they moved away from sort of the concept of, of coming up with concepts and becoming more improvisational? Exactly. Okay. Yes. It was the improvisation between the two and just the fact that they, they, they seemed to like each other and they would start a routine and they'd go into something else. Then they'd come back to the first thing. Uh, and they were just doing stuff that nobody had seen a team that was so, had such a physical contrast. You had the, 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 the macho he-man Dean and the weird little guy Jerry, even though they were in, in terms of height, they were they were about the same size. But Jerry would crouch down, and Dean would appear to tower over him, and uh, it was just something that nobody had ever seen before. This 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 big brother and this and this little bizarre, outrageous <laughs> troublemaker. Right. So that so and that gelled on stage basically, and and I guess they turned that into a regular routine and a regular act, a team up. 
Exactly. They they worked out they worked out routines that played to their strengths, uh, and and uh, it, within a few months, Jerry was going down into the orchestra pit to conduct while Dean sang, and of course, creating havoc there. <laughs> so that sounds pretty funny. But anyway, and yes, and and that's and you see that bit in, on television all the time. They would close. The, you got to where they were closing the shows with with one of those routines where Dean would sing a song and Jerry would do something outrageous. Right. Absolutely. Now, for them, what was sort of like you said they liked each other and stuff, and obviously the audience is starting to love them. What impact does the success of that stage show have on them? Do you think, as a team, as individuals, however you may be able to answer that? Well, once they started making a reputation around town, the better nightclubs became interested, and eventually they wound up in the Copacabana in April of uh, 1948. They were supposed to be a supporting act. Uh, after one performance, the management had to put them in the headline show because they, the, the headliner spot, because they so overpowered uh, Vivian Blaine, who was uh, a musical comedy star for, uh, for 20th Century Fox, and um, just could not possibly compete with that madness, that 40 minutes of madness that, uh, that Martin and Lewis put out with. In fact, they, I think they went beyond their allotted time because the audience wouldn't let them go. They kept calling them back for more. Uh, so from there, they were seen by the, the, the big critics in New York and uh, were able to get some radio gigs and then from and, uh, and, and get an interest from the three networks. They also went on to the very first Ed Sullivan show, the very first toast of the town with Ed Sullivan Wow! Uh, featured Martin and Lewis. They were pretty much the headliners of that. And that was in uh, June of 1948 while they were still at the Copacabana. The, the, the nightclub held them over for practically just about three months. Wow. And then they went to Hollywood in the fall of 1948 to do Slapsy Maxie, the you know a, a club of a similar stature on the West Coast as the Copacabana had in, on the East, and the audience was packed with movie stars and movie executives, and um, of course they they took Hollywood by storm too, and that enabled them to get on Bob Hope's show for for a couple of appearances, and uh, it just snowballed from there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how their radio show uh, came about. And and I do have to ask, it would seem for an act that is so full of improvisation. And so does that play, did that play well on radio, what they did? Mm, Not at first, really. They they obviously had to stick to a script. And uh, in the very beginning, they they did not have any real creative control, although several of their – uh, some catchphrases were used and so forth. I mean, Jerry at that point was already starting to look at Dean and just go, are you for real? Right. And that, that became a, a standard line in the radio shows. Um, but they put them into a situation comedy type of, uh, of, of thing where the oh. two of them were aspiring nightclub performers and the plots would have to do with them getting to get a new show together or going down to the studio to record something or... Uh, uh, there, there was one memorable because it was so badly written, a show where Tony Martin's fan club 
uh, tries to sue Dean Martin for using the last name. <laughs> for <having laughs> That's actually the same pretty funny, name. but okay. And it becomes and it becomes a, uh, a, a it sounds funnier than it than it yeah. plays, but but it it was an interesting concept just ineptly handled, right. and uh, and things like that. Um, and and at one point they got into a very long story arc where the two of them were going to buy and operate their own nightclub, and that made for some. Uh, interesting situations well as well and they brought in supporting characters uh they had a, a dizzy receptionist secretary they had uh a sleazy guy played by sheldon leonard who who was the guy who always talked like this when do you get off calling me nick show. right <laughs> yeah exactly life. so he brought his uh what i call his patented damon runyon-esque voice to uh to martin and lewis's world right um, but he generally got funnier material than they did, so uh, um, that that definitely wasn't going to last very much longer. No. Anyway, the show didn't really build an audience because it started before they had made their first motion picture appearance, and even though it continued after their first film, My Friend Irma, had premiered, and, and everybody started uh, paying attention to these two, uh, mainstream America, that is, the people who don't go to nightclubs, um, it still didn't build enough of a listening audience for them, and the show ended up going off the air uh, in January of 1950. How was it, though? I mean, you've I, obviously you've listened to these things, I would assume, or... Yes, yes. I've heard pretty much all the shows that are, are uh, in circulation and a few that aren't that are in private archives. And it's uh, it, it's rough going. It's not very well written. It doesn't play to their strengths too often. Um, there's certainly, as we've discussed, there's little to no improvisation. There are a couple of things that sound like ad libs that get laughs every once every three or four shows, but it definitely just didn't have any any spark to it. It it just sounds kind of mechanical, and uh, and the material isn't anything that uh, any other two comics couldn't have done. So you've got guys who are on the ra- on the radio. They've done the stage thing. They're on the radio. They're starting to make movies. When does TV come into this then? Pretty much at around the same time. Uh, as I mentioned, they did their very first TV appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in in June of forty eight. Right. And uh, they went on to do some, when they were signed by NBC, NBC would have them come on occasionally to do uh, other shows on television and during 49 and 50. And then finally, in the, uh, the spring of 1950, uh, the Colgate Comedy Hour was conceived, and, uh, and they became part of that. It was a show where uh, a series of hosts would alternate weeks. Um, and, uh, Martin and Lewis made eight appearances during that first season, actually nine, because they also guested on uh, a show that was hosted by Phil Silvers and, uh, they got the biggest ratings because the show was just so much different from what the other hosts were doing. It was, it was more free form. Um, Jerry didn't hesitate to ad lib, uh, strange introductions to Dean's songs or he'd run around the the theater and he'd show the other cameras or he'd play around with the cameras. And, uh, it it was definitely something that the other 
shows weren't doing. And, uh, and as I say, their charm is best appreciated uh, when it's visual, when you can see them hugging each other or grabbing each other. Or all the physical activity is, is part and parcel of their, uh, of their partnership. It's, was it unusual, maybe it wasn't back in the day, because today you certainly could imagine, that an act would be doing a radio show and a TV show and making movies all at basically the same time overlapping each other? Yep, yep. How crazy is that? <laughs> well, there, you know, I mean, you know, Abbott and Costello did it for a time, although actually, no, Abbott and Costello's radio show had ended by the time they moved on to the Colgate Comedy Hour. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. They were such in such demand that NBC was willing to uh, bring them back to radio just to to keep them on the air. And uh, they did a second radio series that lasted two seasons. It was written by their TV writers and played, as I say, played to their strengths. It was more of a variety show. Dean would come on as the quote master of ceremonies. He'd sing a song. Then he'd introduce Jerry. They'd do a little shtick. They'd bring on a guest star. They'd do a sketch with the guest star, and uh, and Dean would sing again, and uh, that played better than the 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 hackneyed plots that they were trying to deal with in their earlier radio series. Right, right, absolutely. You know, they become such a sensation. They're making the movies. Like I say, they've got all this other stuff going on, and in the beginning, they truly loved each other, as you said. And really enjoyed each other. What I mean, I mean, I know it because from reading the histories and stuff. But could you tell us what changed? I mean, where did things start going south? Uh, it was ambition. Uh, def- it, both men were ambitious. Both men wanted to be successful, and uh, but Jerry wanted to be more than that. He wanted to become, uh, as he later put it, the king of showbiz. And he wanted to learn how to produce and direct and create his own films. He was starting to envision situations where his character was more than just the crazy guy. He also wanted him to be sympathetic. Uh, he wanted him to be more of the quote-unquote lovable schnook, which was how he, he originally termed it. So, And, and that played havoc with Dean. And, and fairly early on, Dean was already beginning to sense that as far as their films were concerned, and remember, the films were going to be their legacy, because the TV show was one and done, radio shows were one and done, um, nobody thought about rebroadcasting kinescopes, because they, they only existed for one-time air for, show, for cities that could not um, uh, telecast live. Um, they, they were, that's what kinescopes were used for, so that they could air the show without having to worry about telecasting live. But then once it aired, that was it. It was over. Done. Right. So it was the films that were going to be their legacy, and most of them were cut from the same cloth. Dean was the uh, the smooth Sharpie and, and sometimes a, a real slimy guy. But then after interacting with Jerry, who was the lovable guy, the funny guy, Dean would eventually see the light, and by the last reel, he would be the good guy, and he would help out with whatever Jerry was doing. It was the same formula time and time again. Right. And Dean was getting tired of it. He wanted to do something more ambitious, but he realized he wasn't going to get that chance. And now that Jerry was bent on becoming the sympathetic character at all times, even on TV, he knew what was going to happen. He was going to end up playing a one-dimensional heavy. 
and uh, uh, who becomes a nice guy in the last five minutes of the show. Right. So he was uh, he, he was getting tired of that. Also, he was beginning to make a, a mark as a singer. Uh, the 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 first hit uh, that's Amore, which was from their film The uh, The Caddy. In 1953, that became a huge smash, and it was even nominated as Best Song for an Oscar. So uh, he wanted to pursue that more as well, and he wasn't getting the chance to do that in the films because the emphasis was slowly becoming more about Jerry Lewis and Jerry Lewis, what Jerry Lewis is going to do in this situation and what Jerry Lewis is going to do when something goes wrong and how he's going to react to it. And Dean was getting shunted aside. And, and that was, uh, you know, the, the man was proud and he knew what he brought to the, to their performances. He, he understood just what his strength was in the act. Um, he once said, I'm the straight man. If I was jealous, this act would have folded years ago. Right. So it, it wasn't jealousy. It was just ambition. And, and Dean really didn't want to work with a guy who was spending all his time up in the control room lining up the shots or, or telling the director what to do or working with the musicians on what their contribution was going to be. And Jerry was doing all of those things for both film and TV. So he was really taking over, basically. He, he, he really was, yes. And Jerry later said, and I tried to get Dean to... to I, I tried to tell him this is what we should do for our career, and he didn't agree with me. And I was very terribly hurt by hit by what he did. And he said, "But in retrospect, that was wrong. I had no right to expect it." Um, and uh, so that, but 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 at the time, it was there was a great deal of bitterness between the two of them that just festered, and eventually it spilled out. Um, and uh, and and you can see it happening. That when you watch their TV work during the course of you, and you understand, I, and I tried in my book to put to put in some con context, right. context, so that everyone would know. Okay, this is what was going on behind the scenes at the time this show was done, right? And 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 so forth. How much of this was, and again, uh, by reading the accounts of it all. It felt like the media played a role in this in the sense of the uh, – now, maybe this was Jerry's orchestration, but it seemed like they were focusing more on Jerry. And, and I just read this on Wikipedia this morning, so I don't know how true it is. But I think Look Magazine had a story on the two of them and Dean got cropped out of the photo. Yes, there was a photo from one of their movies that, that was in production at the time and Dean was was indeed cropped out. And when that magazine came out, that, that uh, was uh, – was one of the things that uh, uh, precipitated their first big blow up in February of 1954. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's all true. Uh, the media did love Jerry. I mean, he was the guy who seemed to grab all the attention. He was the one who was swinging on the chandelier. He was the one who actually drove into a camera and knocked it over <laughs> while it was shooting. Jeez. So. <laughs> So, yeah, so he had, uh, yeah, he, he was definitely the center of attention. But, but Dean was enjoyable in the beginning and, and just as enjoyable and, and in many ways just as funny. It was just a different kind of humor. Right. And, and, and people got that. But the, 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 the main reaction, of course, was to Jerry. He was always the catalyst. And certainly, as we, as we discussed in the films, 
that was absolutely true. He was the focus of attention. Um, it's less obvious on TV, but it's, it, it gradually became more obvious as Jerry became determined to play the sympathetic, likable character and not just the crazy guy with the, with the handsome partner. Yeah. You know, when they broke up, when the act ended, and I, what I read was as soon as Dean could get out, he got out. As soon as the contract ended, they, they fulfilled their obligations. He was gone. For the public, <laughs> this is going to be a stupid comparison. Was it like the Beatles breaking up? Absolutely. I mean, th- I, I, I made that comparison in the book as well. Number one, there at the height of their popularity, there is that you can find film footage of the two of them looking out the dressing room window of the Paramount Theater in New York City, and the streets are jammed and mostly jammed with young teenage girls who are screaming their lungs out, and the two of them are throwing autograph photos out the window, and it's just bedlam. Uh, and the same thing happened, of course, with the Beatles. Yeah. There would be bedlam whenever they were making personal appearances, and streets would be choked off with people, mostly teenage girls. So in that respect, yeah, they were the Beatles of their generation. They were, as, as a friend of mine put it in, in a review, they were rock stars before there were rock stars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, when they broke up, was the animosity between them? Was it because just Dean needed to get under, out from under Jerry's shadow? I mean, what was the feeling between them? Because I know they went a very long time without speaking after they broke up, right? Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the myths. that. Well, I was let's talk about that myth up. then. Yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> All right, yes. Jerry Lewis, first and foremost, is a showman. And he's going to do, and he's going to say things to get a reaction from an audience. Because that is what he lives to do. Right. Uh, or lived to do. So in, in talking about the split, he would say, yeah, we didn't talk to one another for 20 years. That's, that's not true. They didn't interact the way they did as partners, but they would occasionally see each other at public events and they'd speak civilly to each other. Or uh, when, when Dean's father died in 1967, Jerry came over to the studio to offer condolences and they sat and chatted for a while, and then Dean spontaneously plugged Jerry's show on his own. So there, there, were that, there was that kind of interaction. It was very low-key, and, and a lot of it wasn't public. Um, as, as, uh, back in 1960, actually, the two of them appeared on stage together in Las Vegas for about 15 minutes. Jerry was taking over from Dean uh, at that particular uh, venue, the Sands Hotel, and Dean was doing his closing show Saturday night. Jerry was going to move in on Sunday. And Jerry was in the audience for Dean's closing show. Dean called him up on stage, and they did 15 minutes of old shtick. And this was in 1960, suppose, you know, four years after the two of them broke up so bitterly that they didn't want to see each other ever again. Right. Um, you know, so it's not that they were buddy-buddy ever again. I don't think that really happened. Maybe towards the very, very end, they... they uh, they finally put aside all the old bitterness and all the nasty things, but it was easy for Dean. The thing of it is what, and you talked about the media. Yeah. The thing of it with Dean is that it was very easy for him in character as 
Dean the Drunkie, to, to occasionally make a crack about Jerry's uh, artistic aspirations or the, just, just his existence. The fact everybody knew that the two of them used to be a teen, and occasionally there, there's a clip from one of the Dean Martin shows where he's trying to read a cue card, and he can't, and he gets the word wrong, and he says, "No, that's not spelled right." And then he looks at the cue card guy and goes, "Did Jerry send you?" <laughs> <laughs> so that's a funny joke, but okay. Yeah, it, it is, and or or you know, the, my favorite is the sketch with Bob Newhart where where J- J- Dean is just cracking up, and. Newhart is like totally taken aback because you know he, he he's supposed to be working with a straight man, his, but his straight man is laughing hysterically at at what Bob Newhart is doing and saying. Right. Um, so finally, Newhart looks at him and says, "Are you sure you worked with Jerry?" <laughs> and Dean bursts into laughter and he says, "Yeah, but our stuff wasn't this funny." <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. And that is a priceless moment. So it it's uh, it it's. In any event, they, they did interact from time to time during the course of the 20 years between their split and the big, big reunion on the muscular dystrophy telethon in 76. Was Dean drunk on that? Because I, I kind of remember that he just didn't seem with it uh, I, I, with that telethon. Well, I'll tell you truthfully, by that time, he was using Percodan for okay. pain, just as Jerry was. Right. <laughs> It was something else the two of them had in common. They both didn't know uh, enough to to lay off the painkillers. Right. Um, so yeah, he was a little fuzzy. I mean, it was after midnight, and uh, but um, I don't think he was out and out drunk. Okay. I, mean, I just know the that performance he, was off. he does. Yeah. The performance he does with Sinatra is too sharp for him to have been as, as, as completely wasted. Right. Is that where Jerry said, I don't know why we broke up, and Dean mutters something like, oh, I don't know, <laughs> something like that? Well, <laughs> am I misremembering? I can't remember if, if that was it. it, it no, he just said, uh, I heard all these rumors that we had broken up, and when I started the show and you weren't here, I believed it, and Dean just laughed. Oh, okay. See, boy, I totally manufactured that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> You know, towards, I mean, they made it sound again, this is based on Wikipedia, that these guys towards the end of their life, or Dean's life, I guess, spoke all the time. Like every day, Jerry claimed they spoke. Is there any truth uh, to that? Yeah. Or is that an exaggeration? And that's Jerry being the showman. Right. That's Jerry saying what he thinks the audience wants to hear. Yeah. They, they, made, they made peace when Dean's son died in that uh, tragic plane crash. Jerry came to the funeral, didn't announce himself, just stood in the back, never made his parent presence known. He just happened to have been seen by Dean's manager, and uh, and the manager later in the day said, uh, you know, Jerry was there, and Dean was astonished. Really? He's like, why didn't he come over and say hello? He said, well, I guess he didn't want to bother you. So Dean said, well, can you get him on the phone? Dean had never called Jerry. Jerry had called him a couple of times, but Dean had never called Jerry until that happened. Right. And the two of them spoke for... 20 minutes, some, some sources, one source says it was about 20, 25 minutes. Another source says it was two hours. I don't know how long it was. It doesn't matter. They, they, they made nice. And, uh, and after that, at least Dean stopped making cracks about Jerry, even when he was just clowning around in character and Jerry started his great, uh, his, uh, his, his push to, uh, to, to, uh, portray their friendship as, having been reignited and uh, 
and the, the, the stories about calling him every day and, and yeah. all that. Yeah. Whereas there's a much more casual thing than that, but at least there was an animosity, but it wasn't like you said earlier, they're not buddy, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, when in your research, you know, uh, about these guys, what's your impression of Dean and Jerry separately? I mean, as people, what, what was your impression of them? Uh, I think both of them are trapped in the, the showbiz personas that they, uh, that they created for themselves. I think both of them are deeper human in as human beings than they, than they have been portrayed. People love to portray Dean as uh, my favorite thing is, is, uh, his obit in time magazine begins with, did anybody ever care less about being in show business than Dean Martin? That's absurd. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had the nose job. He had to learn how to talk properly. He, uh, he, uh, he, he signed with one manager after another, just trying to get something going. Of course he cared about being in show business. It's, you know, that, that's a, that's a crazy thing. He, uh, he, he just played that character so well and so consistently the easygoing drunk because he was so good at it and it was, uh, it, it had a charm of its own. There's a film that Jerry did. Uh, Jerry in the early fifties was beginning to make home movies. Uh, and he would use 16 millimeter equipment and he would shoot parodies of motion pictures of the day. One of them was a parody of come back little Sheba, which he called come back little Shiksa. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So there's a scene where, and Dean is playing the Burt Lancaster role, the alcoholic doctor. But in this, in Jerry's film, everything is switched up. The wife wants him to be an alcoholic. The wife wants him to have an affair with the uh, Terry Moore character. The Terry Moore character wants to get it on with the uh, with the model, the male, the hulky male model, and the male model only wants to pose for her. He doesn't want to come on to her. Right. So it's all switched up. Anyway, there's a scene in the film where they go to an AA meeting, always alcoholic. <laughs> and okay. yes, and Dean gets up to sing a song. It's like watching his solo act. He's a little bit boozy. He slurs some of the lyrics. He kibitzes with the people who are accompanying him. It's, it's funny as heck. And it's, it, it predates, and this was before, it predates the, the real struggles that Dean and Jerry were beginning to have with each other right there obviously the fact that dean is participating in this thing willingly is is a sign that the two of them are still very close and yet he nails the 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 character so well i was just in shock when i saw this little segment because it seemed like it was an audition for his solo career would would you say that the breakup between these guys in a sense, benefited Dean more than it did Jerry. It felt like Dean's star kept rising and Jerry's kind of went down. I would say so. Jerry, because he was so in love with show business, reinvented himself time and time again. I think you saw that when he did the dramatic picture, Martin Scorsese's uh, King of Comedy. Yeah. And uh, and then he went on to do dramatic roles on TV. Wise and, guy. Uh, wise guy, yes. I remember that. And, uh, and then, of course, he became an elder statesman of comedy. So in that sense, yeah, but Dean in the 60s, 
Jerry was still clinging to the the character that he he, he was trying to find a new direction. Let's say right. after his contract at Paramount ended, and he went over to Columbia and started trying to do more sophisticated uh, humor. Um, but he was having trouble finding his way. He was still going back to the idiot kid from time to time because he felt like that's what audiences expected of him. Meanwhile, Dean um, had become a very fine actor. And then, of course, he had his variety show, which really struck a nerve, I think. with uh, it, It's amazing how powerful television can be when it's, uh, when it's done well. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, and and suddenly his his records were selling better because he was now plugging them on TV, and uh, the show was easy for him to do. He only had to work one day a week. He only had to come in on Sunday, uh, and he specifically did that not because he was lazy, but because he wanted to be available to do motion pictures during the week, and he knew he would have to be on location or on a set, and that he also knew that he wouldn't be working on a film on Sunday. Right. So that's what that was about. That was about him being able to maintain his motion picture career while doing TV. And so, yeah, Dean was more visible. His films were better because he was playing a variety of characters and doing them very well. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, Jerry's were starting to fall out of favor. And eventually, by the early 70s, he stopped making movies altogether and his life pretty much went into the uh the uh, uh muscular dystrophy telethon yeah you know and i gotta tell you because i'm gonna pre pre um pre <laughs> i can't even think of the right word anymore uh proceed the comment i'm about to make about him with something else in the sense that i was writing a book about the tv show wise guy and i wanted to interview him and he had my wife and i come to new jersey atlantic city and he put us up in the hotel we got his show and everything else couldn't it be more gracious nice a guy uh, uh-huh. than anything. But he has this reputation. And I've interviewed people who worked on Wise Guy behind the scenes who told me, he's just got this nasty reputation. What did you find in your research? Uh, that all of that is true. That I think with Jerry, if because he is so focused on his show business life that if you show him the respect that he thinks he deserves, he'll he, he couldn't be the more gracious friendly guy but if he's if he's had a bad day or if you don't approach him with uh the the proper amount of uh reverence and respect for his accomplishments then he's gonna he's gonna get nasty i i and i think that's what happens most of the people who write about him how nasty he is really don't have any respect for what he's done right and, and for his accomplishments and, and, you know, you don't have to find him funny, okay? You know, not everyone is going to go for that kind of wild humor. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a given. But don't take that out on him. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know? right. But I saw that one interview. Remember that awkward interview? I can't even remember who it was with, but somebody was asking him questions, and he just, he turned it off, and he was just... It made yep. it the most uncomfortable interview you've ever watched. And I can't remember what it was for. <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about, though? Yeah, I, 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 I didn't watch it myself because I tend to avoid things that are very painful. But I did read about it. And it was, uh, yeah, it was just like one one syllable answer. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yes. There's nothing worse than no. that in an interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been there. <laughs> you know, uh, 
when you look at the legacy of these guys, I mean, how would you describe Martin Lewis's legacy? Uh, well, you know, I closed, I closed with their, with their observations. Dean, Dean described their legacy as, uh, as, uh, with Jerry and me, it was mostly just doing what we felt and it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and Jerry said, it's two guys who had more fun than the audience. And that is, uh, and, and that is how I feel too, watching them unrestricted, watching them do their nightclub routines on the Colgate hour, or even in even many of the sketches, particularly in the early years where the two of them are not taking it seriously and are ad-libbing constantly and, uh, making fun of the props and things like that. It's, uh, it, it's just a joy to behold. It's so different. It's so refreshing. It's, uh, it's anarchy, slapstick and warmth. And, and just meld it together into a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. We hope you enjoyed this trip back to the golden age of Hollywood. Please subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends about us and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.